We're going to turn uh, for a short while this evening to Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter in the Old Testament, as uh, Alistair mentioned when he read from that passage. And uh, it will bring to an end our uh, short study um, from this last book of the Bible. We've just looked at each of the chapters uh, consecutively in the last four weeks. So we'll pray that uh, the Spirit will help us and lead us and guide us. Uh, I feel we'll need the Spirit tonight for this particular subject, uh, and also we'll need the Spirit because uh, it's warm in here, and uh, I feel I'll be on a battle just to, to do my best to keep you awake. Uh, but the Spirit of God will deal with that, and uh, we'll manage to get through. It's that time of year, isn't it, in January? Miserable long month. Um, cold and wet. Anyway, so let's go back to uh, Malachi chapter 4. I suspect that um, uh, there are, are at least two questions we often ask in our lives, um, and at least two issues that we think about a lot in our lives, um, which may be focused uh, in questions. The first being, uh, what, does, what does the future hold for me? I think we're all interested in the future and uh, our future. Uh, and maybe uh, not everyone asks this question uh, explicitly, but maybe implicitly, very often we are thinking about this in our lives. Will there be a day of judgment? Uh, so, what, what does the future hold, and, and will there be a day of judgment? I think clearly we've, we've got an interest in the future. We all have an interest in the future, a deep-seated interest in the future. We see that in the political arena, uh, that we're living in just now, uh, environmentally, even, culturally, politically. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the future. We, we hear a lot about the future. And personally, we think about the future. I'm not sure whether it changes as we get older. I think probably it does in some ways. I think uh, when you get, as you get older, we maybe think more about our own very personal future and what it's going to look like terms of health and uh, in terms of how, it's gonna, how things are going to work out uh, in, in this life anyway. And uh, maybe the younger generation, I may be wrong here, uh, maybe the younger generation are, um, think more about uh, the future of the world, as it were, the future. And, you know, we've seen that a lot in the way the younger generation have driven the environmental concerns that we have. The future of this world uh, is maybe more of a passion. There's maybe in younger people uh, more of that presumption that their, their own lives will just go on uh, and that, that lies ahead of them. But they may be more concerned about uh, the, the world in which they live. Whereas uh, when you get to your mid-50s, you start thinking much more about your own personal uh, decrepitude, de decrepitude uh, and uh, what the future will hold. So we do think about the future. But we clearly also think about uh, accountability um, Will there be a day of judgment? We all believe in justice, absolutely. Uh, that, that's clearly uh, an experience that we have. We may not formulate it biblically, but we are hardwired to consider justice in our lives. Um, and in many ways, we are relentless legalists. Uh, uh, sometimes we'll put our hands up and recognize that we've done wrong and we're guilty, uh, and we'll say it's my fault. But very often we'll also blame other people or blame God 
uh, and hold other people to account. But it's all part of this hardwired reality of judging uh, uh, and recognizing justice and the, the desire for justice. We often resist its glare, I think, in our lives, and, and often make ourselves uh, the standard by which we judge other people. And that makes it easier then to justify what we do and how we live and the choices that we make. And even when we recognize we're the recipients of, of a just judgment, we, we tend to be very defensive. We, take, we react badly to it, uh, even if it makes sense or if we know it's right. Uh, you know, uh, someone who's been caught having an affair uh, will often justify their own behavior and justify their own actions and blame the other person. Lack of love, a lack of attention. Uh, I was drawn aside. Or a more kind of trivial example of a, maybe a speeding ticket in the city. Well, it's 20 miles an hour. I was, it, the roads were quiet. It was late at night. I was breaking the law, but it wasn't quite so significant. And it may be little things like that, but it was ever thus. But the, the question that we so often ask, why? That, that question that we ask, why? is a question which recognizes justice and account, accountability. However we ask that question, we want somebody to be held to account to answer that question. Why? Why has that happened? Why is that the case? Uh, and every time that question is asked, and increasingly people will, will want to hold, uh, someone has to blame for everything. Someone has to be held to account for what is going on. Very often for us in the world, it's God that gets the blame. And that's an interesting uh, consideration uh, for us. But I think when you're, when you're defending your faith as a Christian, when you're standing up for what you believe, and people question what you believe as a Christian, I think these kind of questions are very useful to have with people very helpful to uh, open up sometimes some of uh, the preconceptions, the misconceptions, or the facts that are taken for granted by so often, what, by people so often. What, why do they ask these questions? Why do people, why are people held to account? Why do we believe in justice? And unpack some of these questions with uh, those who would quickly uh, deny and rubbish sometimes even the existence of God and the existence of uh, accountability to Him. So, there is this, within our DNA, that sense of uh, justice and accountability. And this passage, among many others, reminds us uh, that that is the case because we are image bearers of the divine. We are made in God's image. We are accountable to God, because we are made in His image. He's made us, and uh, we uh, are therefore both like Him in, in seeking and looking for justice and also uh, in uh, being accountable to Him. That's clearly uh, what the Bible teaches. It is God to whom every one of us, every single living being, will give account. Second Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done uh, in this body, whether good or evil. The Bible clearly teaches both here, it speaks about the day, for behold, the day is coming, 
burning like an oven. Later on in this short passage, it speaks about the day of the Lord coming. And throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord it refers to the day of God's judgment, the judgment day of God. And the Bible has a beginning, and the Bible has an end. Uh, and history uh, under that umbrella is linear. It is not cyclical. Uh, so there is that beginning, and there is that end, and the end uh, will be when Christ returns on that final day of judgment. God is on His throne, and He will judge all, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed, and uh, this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead or from Revelation also. This is a slightly longer passage, but you know that great passage when I heard a great white throne and Him who was seated on it in the presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And there's this ongoing and clear emphasis throughout God's Word of a day of judgment. And at the end of the Old Testament, at the end of this uh, book, uh, this prophecy, this uh, minor prophecy uh, that Malachi has written to the Old Testament people of God, uh, we have this prophetic forward look uh, to God's purposes and God's plans. So, can I ask, what, what can we take explicitly from this chapter? What is this chapter saying to us today? What was it saying to its original readers, and what is it saying to us? Well, the first thing that I want to uh, mention, and I think this is very important for us as we sit here this evening, uh, representing, as it were, the church. First thing I want to say, it was, it was written to Believers in inverted commas, okay, you've got to just imagine inverted commas. It was written to believers who didn't believe. So, we, we remember that, okay? So, this wasn't uh, uh, God's message for the lost or to an unbelieving world out there primarily. It was written to the Old Testament church, as it were, the Old Testament people of God, and that's significant. And we've seen that throughout this book, that this is a book that uh, God's bringing a message to that Old Testament church of His, Old Testament people of His, who have drifted far away from Him. And uh, there's this inter, intercourse between them, this discussion between them. Uh, and uh, God is exposing their kind of… The, you know, the, this title series for this is questions, because there's lots of questions in this book that uh, reflect um, the kind of things they were asking. They weren't for the most time, they weren't great questions. They weren't good questions. They, weren't, they were poor questions because they were questions that exposed their rebellion and their lack of understanding of God and their lack of faith. How have you loved us? They said. How have we defiled you? How have we wearied you? Where is the God of justice? How do we rob you? What have, you, what have we said against you? And these were the questions that come through the book again and again. They're these defensive questions you know, where, where God is exposing their lack of love and, and uh, following of the living God, and they're asking these questions. No, it's not like that. that we're religious. We've, we're the people of God. We, we're, we belong to a, a really significant culture. Of course, everything's all right for us. 
and yet their circumstances in their life didn't seem to be great as followers of God, and, and so they were blaming God, and they thought it was a waste of time following God. They didn't really understand Him or know Him. In chapter 3 and in verse 14, they, they basically say, it's vain to serve God. It's, it's futile. It's a waste of time. Why on earth would we follow God? And what, what we find in this book is that God's kind of exposing uh, the fact that they're going through the motions religiously, and they're cold, unbelieving hearts. They didn't really bother getting to know God. They were resting on their laurels and presuming that a, um, a few sacrifices they offered and a, a few ritualistic religious things they did now and again, eh, that would that'll please God and we'll be fine. And God say, no, you, you've moved far from me. And so, He brings this message of judgment, as it were, into their own circumstances first and foremost. And I think that's important for us to remember. In the New Testament, 1 Peter uh, 4, uh, Peter says, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It begins with us. Well, then, so the outcome for those who do not be the gospel of God. And I think that's an important biblical truth, is that when God shines His light, and when God speaks, when God reveals, it's always first, it's first significant and relevant in our lives as Christians before we want to push it out into the world in which we live. It's, it's significant that we find God's Word tests our own hearts, and a self-examination of our lives go hand in hand with God speaking to us, so that there's a sense of humility within us and a recognition that we should be distinctive followers of Jesus who love Him and who serve Him from our hearts. Uh, I think in chapter 3 and verse 18, it speaks about that. There once more shall, uh, they shall see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. And in a sense, God is bringing this message to them to show them that their, their lives, their hearts, their burning passions should, should set them apart as distinctive and uh, should remind them that God first judges our own hearts and our own lives and drives us back to Him for grace and for favor. So, it's important that we see and recognize that, that God sees the heart and as we worship this evening, and as we worship in our lives, God sees our hearts. That's, that's the really significant reality, isn't it? That outward religion never saved anybody. And we can't simply be content with that. And He uses His Word to remind us to examine our own hearts to see where, the trust, where our trust lies and not to be quick to ask ignorant questions of Him, um, faithless, uh, cheap questions that are defensive and not willing to hear what He says about us in our lives. We, in many ways as Christians, are to be the hardest and most uh, honest critiques of our own hearts, because it helps us then to find the beauty of grace uh, and forgiveness. So, when we look at a passage like this, which is written to the church, which is written to the Old Testament church, the question is always uh, with regard to judgment. Uh, well, am I, am I a, 
Am I a genuine believer? And that's not, I'm not, you're not to ask that question to be scary, um, but simply to be self-examining, because there's plenty of evidence in, in the Bible. There's plenty of evidence of what the true believer is who bears fruit um, in the knowledge of Christ. You, you know, the parable of the sower, and say Luke, Luke chapter 8 speaks about uh, those who bore fruit and those who didn't. And uh, those who didn't bear fruit, uh, they heard the Word of God with their mind, but as soon as they heard it, it was taken away from them because they didn't allow it to go deep into their hearts. And then there was others who did hear the Word of God and who enjoyed it, maybe emotionally were touched by it, and it went down into their hearts a little bit. But they loved other things more than that, and the roots of weeds of the roots of the weeds of sin went deeper and so choked the word and absolutely destroyed it in many words, in many ways. But the understanding of the gospel in people's hearts is when they hear and know the word and uh, are moved by that word and allow it to penetrate deep into their hearts, as we kind of looked at a bit this morning, to the point that it affects their will and their lives and their obedience, and they bear fruit. And fruit-bearing Christians is what we're to be. We're not all going to be the same. We're not all going to be as fruit-bearing as uh, the next person. Sometimes we'll not bear that much fruit, but we will bear the fruit of grace and of the kingdom of God. So it's important for us, I think, in our lives to uh, allow His loving gaze in our lives as Christians first to deal with ourselves as we think about the future judgment of God, because you uh, recognize that sometimes He brings testing in our lives and uh, difficult times because He is uh, getting rid of the stuff that keeps us from Him. Um, you know, the testings and the trials that are spoken of in 1 Peter 1, so that on that great day our faith will be uh, resting on the Lord Jesus Christ because uh, we've come through these judgments and these difficulties. But remember what Jesus warns. Um, sorry, no, that's Matthew. I think, I, no, sorry, I didn't have that. Uh, forget that. Uh, but in Matthew, Jesus says uh, to those who said, Lord, 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 did we not do great things in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Lord, Lord, I went to church twice on a Sunday. Lord, 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 I read the Bible. Lord, Lord, I went to St. C's. I said, depart from me. I never knew you. So there's that, that sense in which the judgment that he speaks of here, which was given to the people of the Old Testament, to challenge them about their relationship with God is something that we must recognize and challenge ourselves about. So when we come to speak about the day of judgment, uh, we should never be kind of rubbing our hands as Christians saying, oh, that's great. That's where everyone will get their comeuppance and I'll be fine on that day. It's not the attitude that we should ever have uh, to uh, the teaching about the day of judgment. It's, it should always humble us and it should, should always make us examine our own lives and humbly return to the foot of the cross to where our hope and our future lies. So, that's the first thing I want to say. The other thing, one or two things I want to say as well, is that judgment has already begun. 
Uh, in John's gospel, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And there's a reality in which uh, what is spoken of here uh, as the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, uh, it has a future reference to the final day. But also, it reminds us that uh, this is a world that is under God's judgment. Uh, Romans 6 speaks about uh, the wages of sin being death, so that there's already a judgment. The reality of death in this world is a reality of judgment, a separation from love and warmth and life and family and joy. We should never shrug our shoulders at death as if it's just uh, part, a natural part of life. Spiritually, the Bible makes clear that the wages of sin is death. It's that separation from Him. So there's the reality of death, but there's also, of course, already in Jesus, there is the defeat of death, the, the highly significant reality that Christ has come, and Christ has come to defeat death. And uh, that is part of His uh, great atoning work. In this chapter, it speaks of uh, um, Elijah. You hear it says, uh, Behold, I will send you the prophet, uh, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, we've already seen that, that I think, in our study in Matthew, uh, when John the Baptist came, uh, there was a link between John the Baptist coming and Elijah, he was going to be the kind of second Elijah, as it were. And uh, uh, that clearly uh, could be a reference here to the coming of John the Baptist, but also it could speak of the transfiguration, which uh, is recorded in Matthew 17, where Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop in a remarkable way, and on either side of him you've got Elijah and also Moses, who's mentioned in the previous verse here, previous four, uh, in verse 4. And it's as if uh, the coming of Jesus uh, fulfills uh, everything that Moses speaks about and all that Elijah was pointing forward to, uh, because, as we saw this morning, the center of history is the crucifixion, uh, and that is the great uh, work of God's uh, judgment on sin. Calvary is God's great victory over death and the grave and Satan because it's there that He turns the eye of His perfect justice in judgment on Himself in the person of His Son for us. So, that cataclysmic uh, divine act of judgment is what is being prophesied here by Malachi, uh, this great and awesome day of the Lord, at least in part because it is a great day of judgment, the crucifixion that's passed. The whole world goes into darkness for these three hours because it's such a, a, a deep act of God's judgment. And He does it because He takes the judgment that is our deserving. He takes the death that is due to us. So, that act is as far as possible from being the incidental death of a Galilean itinerant street preacher at the hands of an oppressive power, as it possibly can be. It's not just some random act that happened to be uh, taken on board by the early disciples and made into something it wasn't. 
This is the whole picture of Scripture from the beginning right through the Old Testament as it comes to the end of it here in Malachi, which speaks about the day of judgment and uh, the day of the Lord and the coming of Elijah and the fulfilling of Moses' uh, law. He gave himself into judgment on that day in our place and said before he died, it is finished. It's finished. Divine judgment is finished. No judgment, therefore, left for any who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. No judgment left for any who put their trust in Him. He drank the cup of God's judgment to its dregs, which we remembered this morning at the Lord's Supper, enabling us as believers to begin to experience the healing and the freedom that's spoken of in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Healing and freedom is what's spoken of here. So there's that sense in which the judgment of God has come. But also, there's the reality biblically that this day of the Lord that's spoken, this awesome and great day of the Lord that's spoken of here, also has a, an ongoing future um, fulfillment. Not only is it fulfilled in Jesus, but it's fulfilled in Jesus' return, where death, ultimately Revelation 21 tells us, will be destroyed uh, forever. Death and hell, Satan, uh, having been defeated once for all on the cross, will be destroyed in that final judgment. But that final judgment, therefore, as it's spoken of here, um, is a coin of two sides, if we can talk about it that way. Um, and we must never forget that in the gospel message. It's kind of a coin of two sides. Uh, this chapter begins, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the, all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is like the coming shall be, uh, that, sorry, that day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that will leave them neither root nor branch. But for those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, as we said, shall rise with healing in its wings. Uh, and that's, that moves on in a sense to speak of, or at least it refers to the, the fact that final judgment is a double-sided coin, uh, and the gospel message uh, illustrates that. Take, take the phrase that's used here, the Son of Righteousness. Now, if you notice, it's spelled S-U-N, it's the sun, or the sun is in the sky. It's not, what we have here is not, our, not what we would expect if it's speaking about Jesus, which would be S-O-N, the son of God, the son of righteousness, because it's an illustration of who Jesus is, and it's an illustration of Jesus as uh, the blazing sun. And that reminds us of the two sides of the coin of judgment. Uh, um, so what can I say? Uh, bush, bush or beach? If we take two illustrations of the sun in the sky, uh, you've got, for example, what's happening just now, the forest fires in Australia and the great drought that has been caused and uh, the great destruction that's happening there. And the sun in the sky and the drought uh, that the sun is uh, exacerbating, making worse, is one outworking of that heat of, of the sun in the sky. 
But then you go to a beach holiday paradise, and it's beautiful and warm, and you're lying and sunbathing in that uh, with the blue sky, and there's that healing and that beauty of, of, of the sun on our skin. And it's a, isn't that a completely different perspective of the same reality in the sky, of the same object in the sky? And there's that reality also of that day of judgment with the Son of Righteousness. It is spoken of a great and awesome day in verse 5, or a dreadful and great day. So there is a sense in which on that day there is a great sense of dread um, because justice will be done on that day. Wrongdoing, not, not by a, a, our own understanding of the courts of the land, but by the great assize in heaven, the great heavenly court. All wrongdoing will be dealt with. Uh, all pride, as is spoken of here, will be humbled. And as an ultimate role reversal for all who set themselves up against God, they don't need God, not interested in God, no time for God. God's a, a figment of the imagination. He's for just the, the unintelligent and the unscientific and the irrational. On that day, um, all those who set themselves up against God in power and, and significance will have to face that divine judgment. And so to be out of Christ is a dreadful reality. And we need to pray as believers both to examine our own hearts but to have a great passionate love and concern for mission and for the lost and for the gospel because we were all in the same place. It's a dreadful day, but it's also a great day. It's a glorious day and an awesome day for those who have already returned to God and put their trust in Him. Uh, we, there is healing in its wings, and we leap like calves from the stall. That's, a, I get a picture of the, the calves that are born in, into the cold winter darkness of, in, in the shed, and then eventually when spring comes, they, they get released and they jump out, and there's freedom and warmth and joy and uh, happiness. And uh, as we have returned to God and put our trust in Him, the, what we will recognize on that day is that judgment day has already been. It's already been for us uh, because our judgment was in Jesus Christ and He paid the price. And God is just. He doesn't, He will never punish twice. There will be ultimate healing and freedom. Yes, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but for those in Christ, it will be declarative. It will be declaring what we already know is ours in Christ, that we are redeemed by Him. And that great imagery of freedom and healing will not just be for ourselves as individuals. It will be for this universe of which we're a part. It's a great environmental gospel as well as a personal one, because God is saying there will be a complete renewal of the environment in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, complete restoration. And so, in conclusion, uh, how do we react? Well, I think one good way to react to this truth of, of the last day is to ask the one good question that there is in this whole book. Remember, we talked about it being a, a book of bad questions. Uh, there's a good question in verse 7 of chapter 3, but you say, how shall we return? That's the one good question in the book. 
And I think that's always a good question for us to ask. How can I, how can I get back to God? And the answer's always extremely simple, is that we just turn towards Him and ask for His forgiveness and His grace and His renewal. Uh, and ask, if, you're, if you've never been a Christian, you ask to put your trust in Jesus Christ and understand and see what that means. Pray against the passive, uh, complacent attitude that sometimes that we have, and pray just for a sharper and deeper understanding of the person of Christ, His justice, His work, and uh, His great love for the lost, that He came not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And, and experience, as we ask that question, the great picture of the prodigal father with his arms open wide, who will take us and will continue to heal us and give us freedom. And then, as well as that also, can we do what uh, God asks His people uh, to do here? We're to be those who remember. I mean, verse 4 of that chapter, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules. Remember God's perfect standard. That is, you know, the Ten Commandments. And, and what are the Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And remember that that is what Jesus came to do, because we can't do it in our own. We can't love God, and we can't love others the way He wants us to, because we are spiritually dead without salvation. But that is the, the work of the gospel, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's, the gospel is about bringing an estranged family back together, first with our heavenly Father and then with one another, that we live in unity together, reconciliation at every level, turning our hearts towards Him and turning our hearts towards one another. It's, that was a great message, and it was a great message going into the New Testament also, where in the society and the generation where Jesus lived, children were insignificant and unimportant and, and weren't cared for and weren't loved and were aborted and were killed. And, he's, and, and fathers particularly were poor at their task of being fathers. And there's this great sense in which God is saying we will be completely countercultural in uh, reconciling families together and healing brokenness that sin has caused. My niece was married a couple of summers ago up in Dornoch, and uh, I was partake, participating in the wedding. But I, I wasn't doing the sermon, but one of the, the sermon bit was being done by. Uh, my uh, niece's brother-in-law, who's a minister, uh, Andy Robertson. Some of you will know him. He's uh, planting a, a church in Charleston in Dundee. And the first thing he said uh, when he stood up to speak to the uh, newly married couple was, statistically, he said, the person standing next to you is the person most likely to kill you. <laughs> so, uh, it wasn't what uh, people were expecting to hear at a wedding. And obviously, it was a kind of humanist comment. Um, I, and I, I, I can't remember his point of. <laughs> As usual, you can never remember the point. You remember the kind of the joke or whatever, but you can't remember what he was saying. But it's it's a, it's a it's a right statistic. It's a, it's a, the, the reality is that sin often is most intensely felt in family first and in community and sometimes in church. Um, and statistically, that's where most of the murders happen. I don't know about church, but certainly family uh, at that level. 
And so, this speaking of the fathers uh, uh, being uh, reunited to their children is that just that recognition of turning uh, the effects of sin on its head and grace changing our families and changing our churches and changing our communities. Please remember that as we live our lives in the church. And please remember uh, that for those who reject Jesus Christ, there is no hope whatsoever. Uh, there was utter destruction for the Old Testament people of God in the New Testament because they rejected Jesus. Uh, destruction of their land, and destruction of their temple, uh, and the destruction of their hope. But we believe and pray that He will bring His people home. And a book like this, uh, as it ends, should always bring us to our knees and give us a passion to pray for ourselves uh, to bear fruit and for our lost family and friends that they will come to know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to know You and love You better. Um, help us to remember that Your salvation is an absolute gift, uh, that we don't earn it, we can't make ourselves right before the great judgment seat, but that God in Christ uh, took our place, was our substitute, and lived the life we couldn't live yet, died the death that we deserve. Great gift, great hope, great joy that we have when we know Him and know that uh, judgment has been meted out on, on Himself, as it were. He's, he's borne the punches Himself because of His great love for us and His great awareness that we couldn't put it right and we couldn't overcome death ourselves. So may we renew our trust in, tonight and may we have a greater and deeper passion for a family and friends who don't know you and just that we would love them and that we would serve them and that we would share Jesus with them in a respectful and gentle way. Amen.